Hi, everybody. Um, it's good to, good to see you all here. And we're going to start, really make a start in this talk going through the Sadra, this week's Torah reading of Shamos. Shamos is, of course, it means the names, but it's often also given as um, a name for the entire second book of the five books of Moshe, five books of Moses. And Shamos means names. And as we're going to see, that's going to actually be an, a bit of an issue, a bit of a potential problem. Now, why is it called names? So we typically we know the book of Shamos, the second book of the Torah, is the book of Exodus, which is what some of the rabbis called it, the, the book of Yitziah, of coming out of Egypt, or Maimonides, or for example, the book of Geula, of redemption. Others just call it the second book of the Torah. But the book is most commonly known in Jewish sources as the book of Shamos, the book of names. Named literally after its opening sentence, these are the names of the children of Israel that came down to Egypt. And it lists the 12 children of 12 sons of Yaakov. And then it says there was actually 70, um, nafesh, 70 souls. It might actually have been not exactly 70, the commentaries discussed, or is it just the 70 who will become the families that will later inherit the land of Israel? Whatever it is, 70 souls come. Joseph was already there. And Yosef dies. All his brothers, and all that generation. And then the very next verse, the children of Israel, they were fruitful. They swarmed. They increased. They become strong. Very, very much so. And the land became full of them. And incredibly, in that single verse, we transition from names to an amorphous mass that seems to be nameless. So that's the first issue we're going to grapple with. The weekly Torah reading that's called Shemois Names, in fact, seems to transition very quickly away from names into namelessness. And that, in fact, is thematic. If we look at what happens next, we see that there's two midwives. One is called Shifa, one is called Pua, and Pharaoh wants to kill all the Jewish baby boys. And he calls them in, and the rabbi said, I wasn't even their name. The Torah doesn't give us their name. It gives us instead their roles. Shifra was known as that. It was kind of the, the nickname or, or the way people referred to her because she would be mashapa. She would improve the child. She would, from the word go, be looking after the child. Pua, she would coo to the child. We don't even know their names. Now, we know rabbinically what their names are. We know in the, in the oral Torah and the tradition exactly who they were. Mother and sister of, of Moshe, of Moses. But the Torah doesn't seem to use their names. And then more than that, in the, in the verse, in the, in the, in the section of the Torah where Moshe is born, listen to how it begins. ish Levi. A man from the house of Levi went. Levi. And he took a daughter of Levi. Whether that literally means Levi's daughter or a daughter from the house of Levi. Rashi takes it literally a daughter. It doesn't matter. Either way, we're going to discover who exactly these people are. We're going to know that the name of the man is called Amram. The name of the woman is Yechavad. But the Torah is using the device of anonymity, namelessness. And they have a child, a son, and, and we don't know, you know, the son we're going to get a name soon. And then you have Baspara, the daughter of Pharaoh. We don't have names. And in fact, the first new name we're going to introduce is Moshe, is Moses, is named by somebody not Jewish, by the daughter of Pharaoh. Later on, we're going to have the names of Moshe's children named outside the land of Israel and the names of people outside but the Jewish people stuck in exile in the land, we don't meet their names until we discover that Moshe himself has a brother called Aharon. 
but it's a very nameless picture that's being given to us. And incredibly, incredibly, the parents of Moshe, who are going to know their name, the Torah throws it to us as if they don't have names, as if we've lost the world of names. It, like, that generation has died, the generation with names, and we have entered the world of namelessness. Now, it's obvious when we think about it that this was exactly what Egypt intended from us. Pharaoh did not try to destroy everybody. As the Medrash points out in its commentary to this week's reading, Pharaoh only wanted to kill the men. Now, if you want to destroy a people, that is a ridiculously inefficient way to do it. If you destroy the women, there can't be any children. But if you destroy the men and just a few survive, especially if you just kill the babies of that year, there's enough men they could theoretically impregnate many, many women. So what's he doing? It's clear his intention was not the total genocide of the people. I remember hearing years ago from a rabbi in the old city of Weinberg who said, and I forget what his source was, but it very clearly makes sense. This was a, an attempt to destroy the potential leadership, ideological leadership. In those days, the ideological, philosophical leadership would almost always come from the men. So Pharaoh's afraid there's going to be a leader who will pull him out. Rashi brings it, the Medrash brings it. He's afraid of a leader. He's not afraid of the people. But since the leader will come in the male population, kill. So we don't have a leader. We don't have an ideologue. And so he makes the people become nameless. I don't mind you being there biologically, ethnically. I just don't want you there with a separate, distinct identity that can challenge me. So if you're another little ethnic group within the general group sitting under the Egyptian control, that's fine. But not a people who has a different vision, not a people who has a different deep identity that could challenge me. And so that would explain why we go from named to nameless. But it wouldn't help us in, in the fact that we then name the entire weekly portion and the whole book, the book of names. That would seem to be quite inappropriate. So you could say, look, it's just the first significant word. But as we've learned together many times, almost always that opening significant phrase actually gives us a sense of what's coming after it. And these names should be very important, especially because of the Jewish people. We call this entire book the book of names. But also because, as the rabbis tell us, and we read it on Seder night in the Haggadah, we say that we learn that they were outstanding there. And the rabbis say there were certain things that didn't change. Although they assimilated enormously into Egyptian culture, there were three things they never changed. Their clothing, their language, and their names. So these are people who maintained their names and their identity on some level. And yet the Torah is giving us a sense of the non-name. By the way, even the name Moshe itself is not overtly uh, an Israelite name, right? Baspara, the daughter of Pharaoh, says, I call him Moshe Kimin Hamayim Mashisiu because I drew him out of the water. And there's an apparent play on words, Mashisihu, I drew him out and Moshe. But of course, the question you could have on this is that she didn't speak Hebrew. Right, presumably. And she certainly wouldn't be speaking to the people around her in Hebrew. So why would she call him Moshe with, after a Hebrew word for drawing out of the water? So I don't know for sure an answer. This is my own thought. You can take it or leave it. Is, um, I remember my father pointing out that actually Moshe in Hebrew is related to the word for son of. Like Ramesses or Ramesh, there's, there's a word for being a son of. So she may well have intended the Egyptian word She's calling him a son. How do you get a right to call him a son? Because I took him out of the water. I didn't give birth to him, but I effectively did. 
And then the, now I'm going to add this then, the incredible power the Torah wants us to realize that while she was talking in Egyptian, when you translate the words she's saying, that she had no consciousness of what she was doing, but translate it back into Hebrew, into its root, if you like, God's language, and suddenly the same conversation gets a whole new meaning, one she was not consciously aware of, that Moshe's very name means drawn out, not that I drew him out, therefore I can call him son, but that he is intrinsically drawn out of the water. So the Torah is doing an amazingly beautiful play on, on words over here, that Moshe's essence is that he comes from the water, and of course we're going to learn later on that the Torah itself will use water as the metaphor for itself, for the Torah itself. So Moshe is like, comes out of the embodiment of, 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 of Torah, right? Of what water is physically and Torah is spiritually. So she would have had no consciousness as she's saying all this. I, but the point I'm making is that his name, the name that we get is, is an Egyptian name, right? Now, so the Torah is presenting this anonymity, this B'nai Yisrael Paro So they just, they multiplied and swim. And by that taste, something else amazing when we think about this named namelessness, we start with the names of the 12 who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And in fact, we finish the book of Genesis, the book of Beratius, how? We're going through each one's individual identity and role. Jacob, Yaakov give each one a separate bracha, a separate blessing. And he analogizes this one to this creature and this one to this, and this one's going to get this part of the land and this one's going to have this attribute and strength. When Pharaoh talks to the midwives and say, what's going on? Why, why is nobody dying? Well, where are all these Jews who I told you to kill all the boys? And what do they reply to him? They say, the midwives say to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Literally, they are like wild animals. Others could translate as life givers. Wild animals. Before we get to them, they've already given birth. And what does Rashi, what does the commentator here, Rashi, say? On that word, they're like, they're animals. So he quotes the Medrash. And what does he say? First, he's, he's, he's they're compared to animals, right? Their own ancestor blessed them to be like animals. Animals can give birth, they don't need midwives. Where are they compared to animals? Gur Arya. When Yaakov, when Jacob blessed Yehuda, Judah, he says, you're like a lion. Zevitraf, when he came to bless Benjamin, Binyamin, you're like a wolf. Bechor right? all the different Naphtali is called a, a gazelle. Um, Yosef is called the ox. And so it goes on and on. And so, one sec, so look what we've done. We've taken the blessings that were about their uniqueness and we've turned them into animals. They're not even humans. Okay, that's how they're talking to Pharaoh, obviously. But you see what, what, what they're saying to him. The very thing that gave us our uniqueness and identity, we now look at it, or you can at least look at it, as if we're just all animals swarming and, and multiplying and anonym, anonymously, and we've lost our identities. So we need to see how to put these elements together. Of course, as we look across the whole book of Shemos, the whole book of Exodus, and as we look across the Torah as a whole, when they come out of Egypt, then names come right back to the fore. During the exile in Egypt, we have very little to do with the 12 tribes. We're going to get a small glimpse at a few of the family heads, 
next week's Torah reading. But for the most part, most of the tribes we will not hear directly from. But once they come out of Egypt, once again, they're 12 tribes. So somehow the names were preserved in Egypt. And yet when you're in Egypt, you couldn't see it. Somehow the identities are there, but it's almost like they're latent or when something's not overt in the text in the Torah. It means on the simple conscious level, it wasn't there. It clearly was there because it came out later, but the Torah seems to want us to feel as if it's being a little bit pushed beneath the surface. Yes, they didn't change their names. What names really mean was being held dormant, ready to come out on the other side. But during this exile, on some level, it was at least suppressed. That's a plausible understanding. But there is another set of names that are moving all the way through the book of Shemos, the book of Exodus. And those are the names of God himself, of Hashem himself. At the end of this week, we're going to end in a disastrous place. The first plan of redemption seems to have been an abject failure. And I'm going to come back to that. But right at the beginning of next week's reading, Hashem speaks to Moshe, says, I need Hashem. I am Hashem. Four letter name of God. When I appeared to the grandparents of the Jewish, the ancestors of the Jewish people of Israel, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, I primarily appeared with the name Kehel Shakai. There wasn't a full knowledge or connection to this name. So there's a new name of God. The names of the tribes, they may have died. They're keeping their names, but it's a little bit beneath the surface. It doesn't look on the superficial level like a nation of people with separate, distinct identities. Instead, we're getting new names of Hashem, of God. And that's going to go all the way through the Book of Shemos. After the sin of the golden calf, in fact, before the sin of the golden calf, when we come out of Egypt and we stand at Mount Sinai, we receive the Torah, the opening words of God's revelation are going to be, Anoichi, I am Hashem Elokecha. I reveal my name to you. Hashem Tzichem Eretz took you out of Egypt. So what you learn to see in the whole coming out of Egypt, and in fact, all the way through the plagues in Egypt, Hashem will say this. You should know, Kiani Hashem, that I am God. You should know, Kiani Hashem, I am Hashem in the midst of nature. You should know, there's nothing but me. This is, I'm the force, I'm what, that, what drives everything. And at Sinai, he says, I am Hashem, your God. Those two words have, with one part exception, not appeared together since the snake separated them in the Garden of Eden. We're not here learning the Garden of Eden story, but the second chapter of the Torah opens with the two names of God. The day Hashem God made earth and heaven. Every single time God appears in the second chapter of the Torah, the chapter where we discover the relationship between man and God on the sixth day of creation. Every reference to God is the two names. Hashem, which the rabbis tell us Elohim is a name we use for the forces and powers. You look around the world, you see things, people have power. Spiritual beings may have power. Laws of nature have power. And you attribute them to the source of all power. But the four-letter name of God, Hashem, that's beyond. That's like the love, the will of God that is too deep for us to even directly see at all. Any direct manifestation of. And the two are together. It's like you're having a relationship with a human being. There's what you see. Right? You see their face, you hear their voice, and you know there's more. And then there's the, that which is just infinitely beyond. Deep, deep, deep win and self for the person. And to have the relationship, you've got to know they're both there. That which I can immediately see and that which is so far beyond, but must be making its way manifest through all this. 
And those two names appear together, as you'd expect, all the way until it says that the the, the serpent was more cunning from all the beasts of the field, all the beasts of the field, God made. And he says to the woman, Afki Omar did Elohim, God as you can see God, say, you cannot eat the tree. He said, I don't want you to talk about this infinite will of God, infinite depth beyond. I want you to talk about God the way you see God. And we're not now here studying the Garden of Eden story, but she falls for the trick. And she says that we can eat from the trees in the garden. It's the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden. Oh, my Elohim. She uses just God as we can see God. And he says, well, if I've got you that far, I'll show you how far the rabbit hole this thing goes. Because you too can become like God. God knows. Your eyes will be open. You can be like God too. God, the way you see God, you can become that. You can become the center of reality. Your eyes will be opened and you will perceive reality subjectively with you at the center. Knowing whether it feels good or doesn't feel good. Does this person make me feel good? Well, since I'm God's center of reality, this is how Maimonides understands the Rambam in the second chapter of the guide. Since it makes me feel good, they're a good person. This person makes me feel bad, insecure. They're an evil person. And our brain works like lawyers. The people we love, everything they do is good. The people we hate, everything they do is evil. They give charity, they're just trying to look good. Whatever it is. The names of God have separated. And the very next verse, two verses after the sin, it says, Vayishmu, and they heard us call the voice of Hashem Elohim. There's reality now. God's essence, if, as it were, a will coming in with that which you see of God. Mishalech Bagan is coming into the garden. The Ruach Hayom and the Spirit of David. And Adam and his wife are hiding from these two names of God. They can't deal with it. Okay, God calls out, where are you? And, and it all goes wrong from there. And after they leave the garden, those two names, you get one or you get the other. You're never in that relationship where there's what you see, the power in the world, and recognizing that's godliness, really. And then there's also a connection at the same time to the depth, infinite depth of the pure will of God, that pure love, that pure rahamin, that pure mercy, that, that desire to give to the world. And it's only back here that the name of Hashem really makes his way back in, and only back at Sinai, as we stand at the level they stood at the Garden of Eden, stand the people have become one like one human being. It's there that Hashem will reveal, I can put the two names together. The names, the Shemois, the, sh- the names of God himself. And at the golden calf, they break them apart again. These are gods, but they don't use the name Hashem. And then God reveals something else. He says, well, let me show you more names. Now that you're going to try and distance yourself from me, let me show you more names. And he gives the 13 names, attributes, really, of mercy. So we're getting the shameless, the names. And in the end, God says, you know what? Even though those first tablets that had my name on are broken, I'll create one little home, one little place in the world, a mishkan, a dwelling place, where the shachanti besecha, where my name can dwell with them, where I can dwell with them. And the end of the book of Shemos ends with God's presence. Shekhinah, his, his presence, is now dwelling permanently, ready to dwell amongst the people, ready to invite them in in the next book of the Torah. So the very end of, of Shemos is, the, the cloud covers the, the tent, the glory of God fills the Mishkan, 
fills this place, this tabernacle. Moshe couldn't come in and out while it's filling. Ki anan Hashem al-Mishkan. It's the cloud of God, the revelation of God that's there. Yomam in the day. The Aish, the fire is there at night in the eyes of all Yisrael and all their travels. And so we have the revelation of God, the names of God, making its way through Book of Shemais. Okay, so that's an important clue. But how do we put all this together? And really the central issue which I hinted at before is that the book of Shemot, the opening weekly portion, ends in a colossal failure. God tells Moshe the burning bush, he, after we've had the whole introduction to the persecution in Egypt, to the birth of Moshe and Moses, to him, him going out, seeing, taking responsibility and seeing an Egyptian kill an Israelite and getting involved in interceding and, and, and defending the Israelite, killing the Egyptian. And then he has to flee Egypt. And then he's shepherding sheep. And, but we see he takes responsibility. And then we see he's a shepherd and the Medrash says, oh, you're looking after the sheep so well. You know, God will reveal himself. He goes, he goes to Midian. He ends up marrying in Midian. He's shepherding the sheep so beautifully. God says you could be a person or be a leader. And then comes the burning bush where God reveals himself to Moshe, to Moses. And he tells him, I want to redeem the people. And there's a whole plan developed between their massive conversation where Moshe resists and he first says no and yes. And God says, well, each reply Moshe gives, God gives a reply to him. Eventually God says, you got to just go and do it. And they gather, he goes to the people and he gets them all excited. And the Medrash paints the picture of what happened. The people are marching and then the people aren't marching, just the elders are marching, like everyone's waiting to see what will be. And eventually when the positive after that, just Moshe and Aaron themselves, two of them, everybody melted away. And seeing this grand palace or whatever it was, the fear was then just Moshe and Aaron walk in and Pharaoh makes a mockery, says, you know, come and stay in the palace. We'll negotiate for a few days or however long. And while they're, oh, Moshe, you're back in the palace. You grew up here with us. Hey, we've got a guest room for you. We've got your suite still. Your brother wants to stay. And while all that's going on and the banquets and everything, he's busy saying, ha, oh, the people have clearly got too much time on their hands. Let's enslave them more. They can do more. They're unemployed half the time. We can build more stuff with them. And the whole thing is horrendous. Their workloads are going up. Their slavery is becoming even more intolerable. They're furious. And when Moshe comes out of the palace, they're, they're screaming at him. He turns to Hashem. He says, what have you done this for? What, why have you done this? Why have you sent me? From the moment I came to him to speak in your name. Here we have it once again. The shame, the name here is God's name. I can't speak in your name. Hey, Ralama Zeh, it's been terrible things and you haven't saved Hatzelah, you haven't saved your people. But Yom HaShem HaMoshe, HaShem says to Moshe, Atah, now, Tira, now you're going to see, ask Hatzelah Pharaoh what I'm going to do for Pharaoh. Ki V'yod Chazak Yishachem, I'm going to do it. V'yod Chazak Yishachem Atah, you'll see. He will drive them out with a strong hand from the land. Full stop. Mid-sentence. Next verse is going to be, and HaShem says, well, now let me reveal my name and let's start the plagues. What happened over here? Why does this whole thing have to fail? Why does Shem send a movement into action that's going to be colossal failure and then say, okay, I've got, I've got a plan B in case that didn't work, which is the 10 plagues. In fact, that's what Hashem said from the word go. There's an amazingly beautiful medrash, the Shemos Rabbah, the classical medrash on, on this week's Torah reading. And it points out the following. That when... God spoke to Moshe. In fact, he never told him to make this mass movement. The, the Medrash draws on, on the verse in Ecclesiastes and Kohelas, where there in the second chapter, in Pasuk 12, in the 12th, uh, Pasuk Yud Base, it says, 
Who's the one who will go after the king? The overt meaning there is King Solomon saying, look, I, I built all these beautiful things. Let me tell you my experience. Who's going to try and replicate it? I'll just tell it to you. But there's other meanings to it. And the Medrash says, this is Moshe, Moses, who questioned God. What do you mean? Because when Hashem says, take the people out, he says, I've seen the struggles of Ami, my people, Hashem Mitzrayim in Egypt. Their cries, I've heard from their, their being afflicted, right? They're the police on top of them and the terrible stuff they're going through. I know how much pain they're in. The taskmasters, how much they're afflicting. So I'm coming down, I'm coming down, to save them from Egypt. To get them up from this land, to this beautiful land of Eretz Israel, of Eretz Canaan, the land, this is what I'm going to do. And now it's come to me and he says, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Nothing about the people. Should pull them out of Egypt. Moshe says, Moses, Moshe says, who should I go to Pharaoh? I'm going to pull them out. And he says, what do you mean? I'll be with you. Don't worry. And then Moshe says, okay, I'm going to go to the people. Moshe said, I presume I've got to do a mass movement. Hashem never said it. I'm going to say, my God and my father sent me to you, and they're going to ask me what's his name. Mashemoy, what is his name? Back again to that theme, the name of God. What should I say? And Hashem responds and says, Ekiya Shekiya, I will be who I will be. That's what you should do. And he says, look, uh, more than that, Right. And, and Rashi then said, we're going through is that Moshe says that they won't believe that name. And, and, and Sashav says, okay, you can just use the word A alone. Fine. And then if you're going to do it, gather them and I'll give you some signs. And, and this keeps going through. Moshe keeps making assumptions and Hashem basically saying, okay, look, if that's what you want to do, here's the way to do it. And then this will happen. Then here, do it this way. Then do it this way. And the whole thing comes crashing down and Hashem turns to Moshe. The Moshe turns to Hashem and says, what a, this, look at this disaster. And Hashem says, I never said this. Are you ready now to do it my way? The way I originally instructed, just you and Pharaoh, that's it. Okay, that's a beautiful reading. Once the measure shows you this, it just opens the whole thing up. But now that raises the question, why? Why does Hashem have to make it that we go up and then fail? Why not help us succeed the first time? Why not say to Moshe, it won't work if you do it that way? And here, I think, is the unifying idea that brings together so much of this. You see, if Hashem said, look, I'm taking them out of Egypt and you're not involved. I mean, he didn't even need to involve Moshe in the first place. What's Moshe's role? Just Hashem could appear to Pharaoh and say, out they go. What's this all about? The most important thing sometimes is failure. And this is often said in our generation. Yeah, failure is a great teacher. The Torah is telling us this. Hashem is saying, I could tell you it won't work, but since you're so convinced this is the way, I'm going to help you maximize the most effective attempt you could make. And when the whole thing comes crashing down, you've learned and understood the people are not yet ready for redemption. So how can we redeem them? Because they are ready. Their readiness is like a root in the soil. It hasn't yet sprouted, but they're ready for processes to start happening. The rain to fall, things, nutrients to enter. 
There's something there that they can emerge, but they're not ready to jump yet. There needs to be a process that helps them make that jump. Something that died in the beginning, the names of the elders in the beginning of the tribes of the children of Yaakov, died in the beginning is ready to be reborn. It's been, something has been preserved so powerfully in Egypt that it can be reborn, but they're too fragile. You bring them near Pharaoh, they'll crack. So we need to do a process they're watching that will help draw this out within them. And that process will involve the revelation of God's name in the ten plagues. Because, of course, as we say later on in the Torah, the nation of the world will see that the name of God is called upon you. The name Israel means Yisrael, right? It can be, have different meanings. You've struggled with God or Yasharkel, the straight one of God, or the prince of God, but God's name is within you. And more than that, God's revelation, I am, says Hashem, the God, Hashem God, the two names of God, who brought you out of Egypt, that is my name. My name is that I brought you out of Egypt. You, Jewish people, Israel, carry my name. You are my name. You are my revelation. The name you give to me, the name I give to you is what I associate when I see you, right? Well, your revelation, your face, your voice, what you say. I have a name attached to your revelation. The name of God in this world, the Shemois, the Nesar, the names of the, of the children of Israel is the name of Hashem. That's the deep secret. This is the name of God and it will land upon B'nai Yisrael. In fact, we will become the name, the vehicle of revelation of God. But along the way, Hashem says, then I have, you have to be a part of that process. So if you're sure it's this way, I can't overrule you. I need you to learn, look at it, watch the failure, reflect upon the failure and say, okay, I don't know what I got wrong there. Let me, but now I'm open to something that's going to be very different. Now I am a part of this process, Moshe says. We're part of, I'm there. And Hashem says, good, you're finally ready not just to know that this is true, but to internalize it, to recognize it. To not be able to say, oh, I had a better plan. I don't know why I had to be this way. I get completely why it has to be this way. I get what the people were ready for. I get that until the templates happened, they were not yet ready to come. But I also then get what they had internalized that made them able to respond and do it. And what were those things? As we've hinted at, they didn't change their names. They knew there's something about them that's special. But more than that, as we read in the opening verses again and again, even in the ones that sound anonymous, the incredible commitment to life itself. The animals, that's what Pharaoh hears, but the other meaning, they are life givers. And as the Medrash tells us, the ancient rabbinic writings tell us, the men, Pharaoh was scared of the men. The men did give up. It's a Gemara also, Talmud in Saita. The men had given up. They were ready to give up. Even Amram, the great Amram, he's given up. He's lost his name. He's, he's not a man with a name anymore. He's not willing to have children. It's his daughter who says, you're worse than Pharaoh. He's only making a decree against men. You're not having any life. And the Midrashim tell us about the women who would come and ensure that their exhausted and shattered and broken men never stop the commitment to reproducing life. In the anonymity, Remain this B'nai Israel, par of so they kept giving life in the darkest moments of, of their history. 
they were willing to never give up hope and the infinite value of life. This life may not be able to keep any of the practice of their ancestors. It may not have ideology, but there's one ideology you can never take away from us, even if we know nothing at all, our commitment to life. Because the first thing Hashem did to the universe was breathe life into it. And if we feel the infinite godly life in everybody, then no matter how crushed we are, there's a spark that cannot be broken. Even if the names are just become, we just use names, but we've lost what names once meant. The commitment to life will mean that when all the destruction comes and the plague, somehow there'll be something so beautiful that will emerge. We're like a plant ready to suddenly grow, ready to mushroom, ready to develop, ready to become, just like that was the beginning of God's revelation, ready to become the continuation of God's revelation. And so the ten sayings that brought creation into being, by Yom Elikim, God said, Yehiara, let there be light. God said, let there be a firmament. God said, let this happen. God said, let that. God said, let there be life. Will eventually become supplemented, or perhaps even replaced, with the Aseris and Dibros, the ten moral, spiritual commandments, the next speech of God. And in between the names and identities of the twelve and the seventy who die in Egypt, will be reborn as tribes, will be reborn as visions as spiritual dynamics, as something vastly more powerful. And the nation that will emerge on the other side will be a nation who, when it's ready to enter the land for the first time in the book of Bamidbar, the book of, of, of the desert, the book of this called ironically numbers. And when we get there, please God bless Hashem, we'll explain why that's actually the wrong translation. When they're counted, it's Bamispar with the number of Shemos names. You see, when the people are committed to life and existence and God, whatever it is you want, you've given us life. We are the image of, of, of you. Every life is the image of you. Every life has infinite value. We're committed to that. We're committed to the infinite value of each one. We're going to keep the names, even if we look like we're just crushed and that's all we can do is just produce life. When that's where you hold on to, you're not yet ready to go and march yourself to freedom, but you are ready to embrace the moment when Hashem himself will enter and say, are you willing to be my people? Are you willing to be my name? Revelation. And when that happens, and we'll have to study through the next weeks how that happens and what the processes are. When that happens, then the people become the names of Hashem. And when we have that infinite shamus, that infinite depth, that the name Hashem becomes, I'm Hashem, your God who took you out of Egypt. When that becomes who it is, then each one of us gets the mispar shamus. We become a nation of names, of significance. And as Rashi opens, these are the Shmos, these are the names. We know their names. We just read about them in all the last weeks, even though they were counted in their life. Chozamonam, he counts them again, but he them as they die. Tenochibosam, the love, shenimshulukoychovim, that are like stars. Each one's brought out by name, as the verse says, God brings forth all the cosmos, everyone that's a part of his revelation, has a name. So what have we learned together? There's so much more to learn. What have, let's just sum up everything we said. We said that the name of this week's reading and the name of the second book of Torah is Shemos' names. We said it seems overtly to be a world that is crushed. The names are crushed. Pharaoh was killing the men. Pharaoh wanted the identities crushed. And they just, everything becomes anonymous. But hidden beneath that surface is a preservation of name, at least in as much as every life is precious. 
We don't, we're slaves. We don't look like we're unique, but we know that we are. And Moshe is then given this incredible role and he misunderstands. He says, God, we need to reveal your name right now. And what should I say? And Hashem shows him how to do it. And he thinks he's meant to create the movement, but the people aren't ready for that. And then he turns to Hashem and says, it's all hopeless. Hashem says, no, it's not. They still have all that. It just needs to be brought out in the context of my revelation. Because what's really going to happen, the Shemos, the names of those who died, they're not gone. But when they become attached to mine, the names will be breathed back into life. And so the bedrock of the redemptive process and the first layer of what it is that we need to imbue within ourselves to the people who can live as Israel in this world is that recognition of the infinite worth of every single life. The recognition then on a deeper level that the, the nation Israel is one big name of God. And that means every single one of us is a part of that name of God and what our responsibility to the other nations of the world must be as those who invite them into the relationship with God. All things we have to see and learn about. Hopefully it's an exciting introduction to the book of Shemos. Um, and thank you very much. We should all be blessed to be able to live up to these messages and all the others as we travel together through the book, through the book of Shemos, the book of names.